Matthew 17. Today we have a brief text, but let me ask you if you are able to stand as we read Matthew 17, verses 24 through 27. I'm reading from the New American Standard Bible. The text says, when they came to Capernaum, those who collected the two drachma tax came to Peter and said, does your teacher pay the two drachma tax? He said, yes. And when he came into the house, Jesus spoke to him first saying, what do you think, Simon? From whom do the kings of the earth collect customs or poll taxes? From their sons or from strangers? When Jesus said, from, when Peter said from strangers, Jesus said to him, then the sons are exempt. However, so that you do not offend them, go into the sea and throw in a hook and take the first fish that comes, that comes up and when, it, when you open its mouth, you will find a coin, take that and give it to them for you and me. Thank you for standing. You may free, feel free to sit. Now, what are we going to do with that account? You may be wondering that. Through much of this week, I've wondered about that. Craig Blomberg, who wrote prolifically in the New Testament, said... This is perhaps the strangest event in Matthew. It seems to describe a miracle for relatively trivial and self-serving purposes. Now, when somebody says that, that may be a good indication that they're missing something. Is he correct? Is this just a strange event formed for self-serving reasons? Or is there something deeper going on in this particular context? Let's first look at the essence of the context and then let's try to figure out how does this fit? What is the point that is being made? You see that the event takes place in Capernaum Two drachma is mentioned in verse 24 twice and here alone in the New Testament. This event is only in the Gospel of Matthew. So those who are collecting the two drachma tax come to Peter and said, does your teacher pay the two drachma tax? Now, give me the, these are the passages, uh, the passages that are in play here as the Old Testament background for this event. In Exodus 30, verses 11 through 16, when Israel was traveling through the wilderness, they were going to build the tabernacle. This is a section about the tabernacle. And there was a half shekel tax that was charged of all the people. If you were rich, you didn't pay any more. If you were poor, you didn't pay any less the half shekel tax. 
There is no reference in that text, in that text, to this tax being permanent. It seems to be more of a one-time thing. It is invoked in 2 Chronicles 24, and I apologize for that division of, of second from Chronicles. But in 2 Chronicles 24, verses 6 through 9, in the time of King Joash of Judah, his predecessor, Athaliah, had corrupted the temple and destroyed the temple. And so they imposed this tax in order to make temple repairs. After they came back from Babylonian captivity, in Nehemiah 10, there is a third of a shekel that's charged. Now, they ask, does Jesus pay the temple tax? There was quite a bit of controversy about this. Sadducees didn't like it. And the Sadducees really had more pull at the temple. But they were crazy about this idea. The group of people that were at the Dead Sea Scrolls, the community at Qumran, believed you had to pay it once in all your life, not as an annual thing. And those who were ordained rabbis didn't pay. And, and so they're wondering, does Jesus pay? Does, does Jesus pay this temple tax? Now, what you see demonstrated in the passages that are on the slide are passages where Jesus speaks of the temple. He said in Matthew 12 and verse 6, something greater than the temple is here. He was speaking of himself and his ministry. Something greater than the temple is here. In Matthew 21, Jesus is going to cleanse the temple and drive out the money changers. In Matthew 23, verse 38, your house is left desolate. And in Matthew 24, he predicts the destruction of the temple. There were reasons why they may have questioned, was Jesus going to pay the temple tax? Though their answer is stated in such a way that in the original it expects a yes answer. Doesn't your teacher pay the temple tax? Later it will be things that were said about the temple that will be repeated at Jesus' trial in Matthew 26, 61. Or when he's hanging on the cross in Matthew 27, verse 40. These things disturb people. Some of these people... Were they asking nicely, trying to catch Peter off guard? Did they sincerely believe he probably did? I, I, I don't know. But Peter, knowing Jesus, says, yes, he pays it. Did he know that? No. He just saw what he knew about Jesus and he assumed he paid it. But when he comes back to Peter... He said, Simon, let me ask you something. From whom do the kings of the earth collect taxes? All kinds of leaders and all kinds of rulers collect taxes. The point in this question is from whom do they collect taxes? Do they collect taxes from sons? Or do they collect 
taxes from strangers. Who do they collect taxes from? Now, don't think about our modern system, but often kings would exempt their own families and those closest to them. And Peter answers naturally from strangers. And he says, then the sons are exempt. Sons don't have to pay. And Peter apparently understands this conclusion. And he says, but so that we don't offend him, go into the sea and throw in a hook. That's the only time in the New Testament fishing by a hook is mentioned. It's always by a net elsewhere. But throw in a hook, take up the first fish that comes out, and you're going to find in its mouth enough money for you and me. To pay that temple tax. Now, I want to tell you something that's interesting about this particular miracle. We assume, we assume that it was done. The account is told to Peter, but we do not read a specific execution of it. And I believe this is the only miracle account where we do this. So those are some of the simple facts. And they may seem perplexing. But what does this account tell us? What does it tell us about Jesus? What does it tell us about his story that Matthew and ultimately God believe was so important they recorded it here in this gospel. I want to tell you one of the things that is deeply impressive to me about this account. It is a striking example both of the knowledge and of the power of Jesus. Of the knowledge and power of Jesus. Those who collected this two drachma tax come to Capernaum and they find Peter and they ask him about the behavior of his teacher. Does your teacher pay the two drachma tax? When he comes to the home, Jesus knows what has transpired. He knows what has transpired and he knows the answer that Peter has given to the question. Now, could it possibly be that a conversation takes place outside the house? It, it could have been. It could have been, but it's not how I most, most, most likely picture this. But Jesus knows about the conversation, and Peter doesn't raise the issue. Notice in verse 25 that Jesus spoke to him first. Jesus knows what has happened with Peter, and he knows how Peter has responded to this particular question. And he asked Peter the question about taxes. Who pays taxes? The son or strangers? And the answer from strangers. And then he says, well, the sons are exempt. But so that we do not offend them, you go out, you take a hook, and you catch a fish. He knows that Peter is going to catch a fish, maybe a small accomplishment, 
for a professional fisherman. But in the coin, in the fish's first mouth will be a coin and it will be adequate both for Peter's taxes and Jesus. Can you doubt that he is the Son of God? And remember what the Bible says in Psalm 8. God gave man dominion. He gave him dominion over all that passes through the pass of the sea. Psalm 8. Verse 8. The Jesus who knew these things has power to accomplish these things. And just as God commanded the great fish to swallow Jonah, Jesus has a purpose for this fish as well. So it emphasizes to us who Jesus is, his complete knowledge, and his complete power. Now, this two drachma tax was for the maintenance of the temple. It was for the maintenance of the temple. Now, Jesus asked the question, from whom do the kings of the earth collect customs or poll taxes? From their sons or strangers? And the answer from strangers. If you paid the temple tax, who would have been the father in that particular occasion? That would have been God. That would have been God. And Jesus is making a statement about he is the Son of God and he is exempt from this taxation. He is exempt from this. Now, I want to tell you, when we're having trouble figuring out what to do with a biblical account, when you read this parable or this miracle in Matthew 17, verses 24 through 27, and you can't make sense of it, look to what went before it. Look to what went after it. What went before this? When Jesus makes this statement about the fact he is a son. In verses 22 and 23, while they were gathering together in Galilee, Jesus said to them, The Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him, and he will be raised on the third day. And they were deeply grieved. That's what went right before this account. This account that stresses that Jesus as a son is exempt. Now, the word son actually in verse 26 is used in plural. It may include, it seems to include Peter may have included the apostles but 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 Jesus definitely is the son of God in a special sense when Jesus asked 
the disciples, Who do you say that I am? Peter said, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. In Matthew 16, in verse 16. And then when the Father spoke in the transfiguration, in Matthew 17, verse 5, He said, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. He is a son, and as a son, as the fact that the temple is the house of his father, as he said in Luke 2, 48 and 49, I must be in my father's house, he is exempt from this tax. He is exempt from this tax. But he still pays it. Does Jesus being the Son of God, is he going to use that to avoid difficulties and hardship? Or is he going to go through them like everyone else? Remember his temptation in Matthew 4. In Matthew 4, in verse 3, the Bible says the tempter came to Jesus and said, If you are the Son of God, command these stones. To become bread. And then when he took him to a pinnacle of the temple, he said in Matthew 4, verse 6, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down. Obviously, to Satan, Jesus needs to use his position. He needs to use his privilege to avoid hunger, to avoid difficulty, to avoid hardship. That is what he thinks. But Jesus, as the Son who is exempt from taxes, pays taxes. And maybe this is a picture of the bigger life of Christ. As Philippians chapter 2, verse 5, have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus, who although he existed in form of God and did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself taking the form of a bondservant and made in likeness of a man, humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on the cross. The fact that he was the Son of God, he had dwelt with God from all eternity, was not going to lead him to avoid difficulty and death. He was going to humble himself to death. Even death on the cross, the worst kind of death imaginable. And maybe following right after Jesus said, they're going to kill me and I'll be raised from the dead, this account reminds us that this is a pattern of his whole life.
this is a pattern of everything he does. And remember in Exodus 30, a passage we mentioned at the beginning, it tells us that that taxation was for the purpose of atonement and ransom. Fascinatingly, two of the things that will be accomplished by the death of Christ are atonement and ransom. And Jesus also said, so that we do not give offense, so that we do not offend them. One of the ways when we're studying a passage that we can't make sense of is to go to what went before it. And another way is to look at what comes after it. After this, in Matthew chapter 18, there's going to be a discussion about who is the greatest in the kingdom. But look at verse 7 of Matthew chapter 8. Woe to the world because of its stumbling blocks. For it is inevitable that stumbling blocks come. But woe to that man through whom the stumbling block comes. Now, three times, Matthew 18, verse 7, uses the word stumbling block. This is the noun form of the verb used in Matthew 17, 27, so that we do not offend them. And I do not have this in the notes. But that same verb used in Matthew 17, 27 is used in Matthew 18, verse 6. Whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to stumble. It's used again in verse 8. If your hand or foot causes you to stumble, cut it off and throw it from you. It's used in verse 9. If your eye causes you to stumble, pluck it out. The same terms that are used here. Right before this is the death of Christ. And we see in this event a pattern that is going to be true for Jesus. It is ultimately going to lead him to Calvary. But we also see right after this something mentioned uh, that, that shows us the importance of this, of this idea of not offending. Now, I want to tell you something. And you know this. There are times... Jesus doesn't mind offending people. In Matthew chapter 15, as he's talking about cleanness and uncleanness with the Pharisees, and that true defilement comes from within, not from without, the disciples come to him in Matthew 15 and verse 12, and they say, don't you know that the Pharisees were offended at this statement? Same word used in Matthew 17 verse 27. Do you know the Pharisees were offended? And Jesus said, let them alone. They are blind, leaders of the blind. If the blind lead the blind, they will both fall into the pit. As Jesus in John 6 talked about eating his flesh and drinking his blood, he asked the crowd in John 6, 61, does this offend you? Same word. If it was a matter where someone must take a stand, he took a stand with no apology. With no apology with no backtracking. 
But the one who would take a stand, regardless of who was offended, was also one who was careful in this matter of the temple tithes not to offend. And it leads to this discussion about what a horrible thing it is to cause one of these little ones, a child like disciple, <coughs> to stumble. Do you know that Romans 14, 21 and 1 Corinthians 8, verse 13 use this same verb about not offending them, telling us not to cause others to stumble. In Romans chapter 14, after Paul's discussion of the eating of meats and the keeping of days, he said it is good not to eat meat or drink wine or do anything by which your brother stumbles. Now I want to make a point, a technical point, In some manuscripts, even the majority of manuscripts, this word translated give offense in Matthew 17, 27 is not present in Romans 14, 21. It is present though in a few of the earliest manuscripts. 1 Corinthians 8, there's no question. In 1 Corinthians 8 and verse 13, the Bible says, Therefore, if food causes my brother to stumble, I will not eat meat again, so that I will not cause my brother to stumble. It's not talking about us apologizing for saying homosexuality is a sin. It's not talking about us apologizing for saying there's a right and there's a wrong. This passage is emphasizing to us that we may have the right to do things that we don't exercise because it's not a necessity. Because it's not required of us. It's simply something we have the right to do that we will, will forgo it for another's good. And both of these passages link our desire to do that with the cross of Jesus Christ. Both of them do. In Romans 14 verse 15, for if because of food your brother is hurt, you're no longer walking according to love. Do not destroy with your food him for whom Christ died. In 1 Corinthians 8 verse 11, a couple of verses before this. For through your knowledge he who is weak is ruined and your brother for